Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 366th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your leap year host, Mason, joined by my Modern Horizon 2 loving co-host, Abe. Abe, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. What, why did you pick leap year, by the way? Oh, because it's the 366th episode. You see, it's uh, now we can do all the episodes plus leap year that we talked about last week. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that was going to get actually, like, two bits out of you. Yeah. You know, I got a lot of episodes to do of this show. In theory, you know, probably 822. It's just a random number. And so I got a lot of bits I need to have, you know? I still am like, if you think about it, we're not even at the halfway point yet of that number, so... Yeah, uh, and you know what? Now we can mark down 822 is covered as the uh, the callback to the Leap Year episode. Yeah, that is also the last episode of the podcast, so you know. Hey, you got that got that going for you. Series finale. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Longer than Lost and a little more entertaining. But today, speaking of entertaining, is the pick two set review from Modern Horizons. So I want to jump right into this. I want to thank our sponsors real quick at Oasis Games. You go to OasisGames.com and get all the magic cards you need. Use code CCMTG at checkout your first time to get 15% off. And every time you go, use code would that be good to get 4% back in store credit. And also check out our sponsor, Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games sells uh, arena cosmetic things and packs as well that you can the codes you can get for arena. So go to greyvikinggames.com and use code CCMTG to get 10% off at checkout. But today it's all about Modern Horizons 2. I expect this episode to be kind of chunky, kind of girthy. Our last Modern Horizons episode, Abe, went about two hours. Now we had three hosts at that time, so you know that's going to add a little. But it's going to it's going to be a big one, and I'm super excited. The, the last Modern Horizons set um, fundamentally changed Modern in a lot of ways. You know, we we had a lot of cards that ended up getting banned. I think that's how a lot of people remember it. You know, it kind of. We had Hogak go, and we kind of had Faithless Looting and Bridge from Blow go along with that. We had Mox Opal go because of Urza. And just a lot of really powerful things entered the format. And it's going to be interesting kind of seeing, you know, how this modern Horizons impacts the format. And it's also set the bar really high and really scary for some players, right, Abe? Like, the last modern Horizons we just talked about fundamentally changed the format. Yeah, I know that, like, a lot of people... Uh, on Twitter especially, who, like, play a lot of Modern right now, we're like, yeah, it, like, kind of sucks. The format's about to change, like, a ton. It's in a super good spot right now. And kind of up until maybe we started seeing some of the mythics, some people were just like, wait, is that just not going to happen? Like, are these cards, like, not actually that impactful? Because I think that Modern Horizons 1 really did push the envelope in, in what was going on in the format and really, like, sought to be... Uh, a whole influx of things and i i think that it's possible that modern horizons 2 is more of a pull back than that like things are there's more things that enable and and not as many things that like you know take over so things are definitely i, th- I think going to change for people who play modern but uh you know maybe maybe not as drastically as the introduction of like the first cycle of forces and hogak and urza like this whole combination of crazy things that uh that came out of modern horizons 2 maybe not uh maybe not all there yeah this time i i agree um i think you know barring one specific cycle of cards i think for the most part everything's much more tamed on average and things really do like you said enable um and that's kind of great for modern horizons we don't want you know in theory they don't want the set to be about 
creating archetypes. They want it to be about bolstering archetypes you already have or giving them the tools maybe they need that they couldn't put in a standard set without really hurting a format. You know, Some of the cards we're going to talk about today just could not go in a standard set uh, under normal terms, and that means either we don't have them for a very long time or we hurt standard, and Modern Horizons kind of lets us step in there. So let's hop right into the pick two set review. So for those of you that are just not listening to Construct Criticism or haven't listened in a while, the way we do set reviews around here has changed. It's a little different. So what we're going to have is we're going to have five categories, and we're going to tell you about each category before we talk about them, and we're going to talk about two cards per category. This way, we get to frame the cards in the light that we want to talk about them, and it makes it easier for you, the listener, to kind of get what our intentions are and what we mean when we're talking about the card, instead of us having to spend time being like, well, this card's really not quite it. As you might see from a lot of shows that do top tens, the like the number nine, the number ten is almost always kind of a, ooh, uh, maybe I don't know, and we get to kind of skip that whole nonsense here. But if we do decide to do nonsense like that, we get to tell you, which is super exciting. So our first category is sleeper. Uh, sleeper kind of means cards that we feel people aren't really talking about enough that look to be kind of powerful and would probably make an impact on the format. Abe, I'm going to start off here with. Rakdos Headliner as my first sleeper. Rakdos Headliner is black-red for a creature devil 3-3 with haste. And it has Echo Discard a card. Um, so Rakdos Headliner sorry, uh, is super interesting to me because it seems as a way that's really able to enable turn 3 hollow ones consistently. You have a play that you want to do on turn 2 you know, with this 3-3 body that attacks, which you put down the pressure along with like a flame blade adept, really put them on the back foot and then consistently enable your hollow ones uh, and i think that's a pretty tame use of the card there's a little bit of madness stuff in the set and we have things like asmodora undeclared can con but we'll call it asmodora the very long name card uh yeah, this, I'm not saying that. yeah yeah we'll call it asmore for the sake of the conversation everything to be easier but asmore uh enables off discard as well and i think asmore actually does a whole lot for the hollow one archetype as well she didn't make my list uh today but i think those two cards do a whole lot to push hollow one uh, in a direction and open up the door for some more madness and discard style um, of decks to happen. And so it's also a reanimator enabler if you need something in like the black red for that. So I, I love this card a lot. What do you think about it, Dave? Uh, it's actually, I think, a card that really relies on a couple things to be in the mix. You know, like I think for this card to be good, the body of a 3-3 three, three haste for two has to be competitive and people need to not really be playing to the board much. Like, I don't want to be in a position where I'm running into, like, Tarmogoyfson playing this card, mm-hmm. you know, or, like, um, or that every deck is playing a bunch of lightning bolts, which is, you know, actually not the worst if you're using the, the discard card synergy, but definitely as far as enabling a lot of the really cool madness stuff that they've shown us uh, for this set... I think this is one of the better cards for it, at least from just this set. It's almost a card that, weirdly enough, I wish existed in, like, Pioneer mm-hmm. um, over, like, just Modern. So maybe one day we'll we'll see that. But, yeah, like, um, it is it is a lot of pressure. It's like, if you have a deck that can make use of discarding a card uh, or, or make that drawback not so steep, I think Hollow One's a, a good example of maybe something that's kind of missing something since um it lost faithless looting it was really huge that deck's consistency and maybe in like slowing that deck down a turn moving away from all the like blood gassed uh flame wake phoenix stuff 
into just a more traditional aggressive deck that you know is kind of cheating on on putting big power in play with Gurmag Angler and uh, th this being a way to enable it. But yeah, it's not a card that I had actually thought of much at all, and so uh, you know I'm interested to see what happens with it, and especially with um, with Asma Long name. Um, <laughs> Like, if that's a card that's good, and especially if we're trying to just get a bunch of stats in play after making people discard cards and discarding cards ourselves, uh, it's it's up there on the list of things that do be, do be hitting hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely... It looks like a card that I think is a little embarrassing at times um, in the modern format, when I mean, you're just being a 3-3 haste for two. But I think that the Hollow End deck often puts itself in those sort of positions where cards like Tarmogoyf are a big problem for the Hollow One deck. And so I think uh, you've got to be counting on there not being a lot of the Hollow Ones around. Or not a lot of the Tarmogoyfs around if you're registering the Hollow One anyways. But that is a deck that it was kind of on the, you know, on the cusp of the top tier of Modern, pushed down a little bit by KCI, kept down by Humans. And then uh, we had Modern Horizons come out, and it kind of disappeared since then. So it's cool to see it get some love in this set. Um, it's kind of exciting. My other card is Territorial Kavu. This is green and a red for a Kavu creature star star. And has domain. So Territorial Kavu's power and toughness is equal to the number of basic land types you control. Uh, and when Territorial Kavu attacks, you get to choose one. You can discard a card to draw a card. And exile up to one target card from a graveyard. So I the domain Zudax are ones I never really got to play with. Eh? When, I, when I came into modern, that kind of stuff was uh, already kind of powered out and phased out a little bit. But I've always thought that those decks were kind of close. Um, and Territorial Kavu along with Scion of the Draco are two of the better domain enablers and pushers that we got in this set. And it looks to be like there's maybe some sort of domain deck that really gets to play Tribal Flame, gets to play this, gets to play the Scion, have a lot of really powerful two drops, and kind of play more in the turn three to four kill range uh, more often. And a big part of this is actually nothing from this set, but the Triumphs as well. The Triumphs just gave these decks a huge buff at enabling their cards and making sure you always have Domain 5, which is so important for them. And these kind of just been like, okay, now that we can do that, we just need a little bit of threats that are better. And I think Territorial Kavu is pretty consistently attacking for 5 on turn 3. Uh, and I think the the Rummaging, sorry, is actually quite good in this with this card these decks uh it would appear to me look like they run out of gas and could flood out really easily and you actually want to play a kind of somewhat high land count so you have all the fetches to get your domain so i think that part of this card really matters and i think exiling a card from a graveyard is actually just a completely solid and powerful one one of the things i learned from playing amulet a lot was that bajuka bog was a card i had in my main deck that i would search up all the time and matches where you would not instinctively think that you would need a Bajuka Bog. There was just some random reason you need it. Whether it was, you know, our Tarmogoy, if he wanted to get rid of the some of the, some of the card types that they had put in there, like a Planeswalker, for example. Uh, Territorial Kavu does stuff like that. And I think this card is just going to be a big player if the Domain-style deck is going to see play. And I, and I think Domain Zoo has a, has a real shot. I think that there's some other cards we're going to talk about that gave it a buff, but some of the other Cascade cards, I think, really helped that deck. So... What do you think about Territorial Kavu? This seems like a card that I would not expect you to play, for what it's worth. <laughs> well, that's actually really funny. This okay. almost made my list oh, okay. on that's cards super that funny. I was, like, really hopeful for, actually. Okay. So, um, I I don't know. I think that 
I was thinking also along the lines of like, wow, Triome into Shockland into this, boom, 5-5 five, five on turn two. Huge, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that that's actually a play pattern that's going to emerge with this card as much as like a 4-4. Four, four I think it's still gonna be attacking for five on turn three. I'm not gonna say that's not the case. And this actually might be a card that goes best with uh, Ignoble Hierarch. Mm-hmm. Um, because those, the like domain Zudek kind of need ways to like fix their man and have things going. But this almost feels more like a Death Shadow aggro nod than like a tribal zoo nod in, in the sense that like those decks kind of blurred together before Death Shadow broke out because, you know, it turns out if you make your Jun deck with the Death Shadows instead of your Zoo deck with the Death Shadows, Jun is a better deck than Zoo. Um at least for, for the most part at the time that was yeah. the case. Um but it's definitely a really, really strong creature on rate. There's not much to dislike. It plays really well with um Wild McCoddle which is, like, one of the better one-drops for, for a deck like this that's just trying to put power in play and attack, um, backed up by removal or whatever. You can definitely play with Tribal Flames. It helps solve the problem if you were someone playing, like, Team or Battle Rages and stuff, if you were playing a Death Shadow build. Um, you just get a lot of... A lot of that, like, small smoothing to your draws that helps decks that are really aggressive uh like keep from petering out like you never want to be in the spot where you draw a um you draw a team of bladder rage it's not actually it's not like lethal it doesn't actually really help you at all but it's just stuck in your hand you only really have like this one one creature but it will always be large enough so maybe that's like not as much of an issue but cycling extra lands and stuff um with that ability or breaking up you know the random things you can break up with exiling cards in the graveyard like you know, future-proofing yourself from a Snapcaster Mage from your control opponent or, uh, you know, shutting off some random flashback card is is very big. But, like, this card and, um... What's the the red one-drop with Delirium? I think oh, these yeah. cards play really well together. The, I'm trying to look for it up. Uh, Dragon's Rage Channeler, mm-hmm. which is a single red 1-1. One, one. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you surveil one. And then as long as you have Delirium... Uh, it gets plus two, plus two, has flying, and attacks each combat of Fable. Like, these cards, plus Death Shadow, plus, uh, you know, a bunch of fetch lands and uh, Ravnica duels, and uh, some some discard, and maybe, like, a team of Battle Rage or two in there, that seems like a really powerful deck with, like, Luris and, um, and uh, Mistress Bobble, so you can, like, maybe have find some ways to make sure you're making Delirium. That already just seems like a deck that, you know, poses a lot of threats and is already a step up from some of the more, um, the more slowed down versions of, of John Death Shadow that we've seen. And I just think there's a lot of really cool things you can do with this card. Yeah. I, I think it's worth noting too that, you know, I'd say Goyf on average is a four or five, right? Uh, it's, it's pretty not ambitious, but it's kind of hard to get to be a five, six early on the game. And the Territorial Kavu does help with stopping that. So it, it does kind of create some interesting tension about like, okay, what is like the biggest creature we have that's kind of like a creature with stats? Because, you know, the, the Kavu is kind of just that at times. So it's going to be interesting to see where this card pops up. I think it is 
it is just a creature with stats kind of is an easy way to look at it but it's so much more than that and the kind of like stuff you said like the kind of spots it fits into and the slots that it kind of helps enable and fill out the curve of i think is super important um yeah i mean it's also it's very worth noting that it doesn't get shut off by graveyard hate which is something that tarmogoyf has a big problem with and sometimes uh like it came up when like people were in relic against uh grixis death shadow because it was casting like gurmag angler and stuff um but being very resilient to a lot of the splash like things going on in the format that people tend to do against uh strategies like if you're playing a delirium death shadow deck with traversy of Walden and such and uh your two drop doesn't actually get hosed by the people who bring in rest and peace out of their control deck suddenly you're forcing them to have a premium answer and if they don't then you know they're on a four turn clock because and, and it turns the cards away you have right like you have yeah your, exactly find a land whatever it's like okay maybe you do maybe even discard that land you know you just keep churning so i, I think these are really good and I, it's, I think it's worth noting that basically won't die to bolt right like i think a lot of times if you build this it's like resting heart rate is a four four you know like yeah. i think it comes in as a four four so often that it really does demand push or path and I think dodging one of the three big removal spells that's played, or the most commonly played removal spells, I should say, is a huge upside. So that's probably enough on Territorial Kavu. Uh, what was your first sleeper? So my first sleeper, and you will absolutely not believe me when I say this, is Dermotaxi. I don't remember that one off the top of my head. What is Do you Dermotaxi? know what Dermotaxi Okay, so it's Dermotaxi. One, right? Yeah, it's a two-mana okay. vehicle with imprint... So when it enters the battlefield, you exile a creature card from a graveyard. And then you can tap two untapped creatures you control. And until end of turn, Dermotaxi becomes a copy of the imprinted card, except it's a vehicle artifact in addition to its other types. So what that means is it basically has crew tap two creatures, and it's a it chooses something in the yard, and that's what it becomes a copy of. I think this card is going to do something completely busted and unfair. I just haven't figured out how it's going to happen yet. That card because, seems like Citrus Suppliers' its best friend. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it it plays well with, like, if you have ways to make sure you can discard, I don't know, like, an Artisan of Kozilek, something with Annihilator, or, like, a Grizzle brand. We can do some really messed up stuff with this card. Like, it is not that hard to find a way to play a deck that plays a handful of creatures that enable your plan or finds a way to put two creatures in play to tap to then decide that I now have a Grizzle Brand until end of turn or that I am able to, like, make you sacrifice two permanents and attack you for ten. Like, there's... It, it might not be good, and it might not be ready right now, and it might take a lot of work, but I think this card is one where, like, it's incredibly dangerous, and I've seen zero people say anything about it. I think everyone's kind of glossed over the fact that you could exile, like, like I don't know. I was, I was looking, and I was like, wait, you could just exile a Grizzlebrand, tap two creatures, now you have pay seven life, draw seven cards. That's, like, way less work in some cases than, you know, people usually go through to put a Grizzlebrand into play. Mm -hmm. so, That's very true. Uh, you know, we, even some of the reanimator cards in the set, like, they're explicitly trying to prevent you from putting like a grizzle brand into play, you know. So I, I was actually gonna mention that it's so weird. This card says not doesn't say non legendary. Almost every other card like in the set specifically says that. It's kind of crazy, actually. Yeah. So this is one where I think I I don't know exactly how I would do it. It it could be something where you because you're not trying to go the non legendary route, 
you play um, a deck more like the Grishol brand decks that existed when Simeon Spirit Guide uh, was legal and before Faithless Looting was banned, where you were trying to Gorio's Vengeance back, uh, you know, an Emrakul or a uh, or a Grizzlebrand, but it's much harder to get an Emrakul this way. You probably only have to lean on Grizzlebrand or something else. It that betrays um, maybe, or like Ulamog's Crusher, <laughs> if you want to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they can't all be they can't all be wins like that, but but there is. If you're going to play a, a Gorio's Vengeance deck and have a bunch of legendary creatures that are worth cheating into play, that Dermotaxi is a way to do it, then you just have to find a way to get some creatures into play, which if you, you know, build your deck to do it, if you're trying to, like, mill enough of your own cards that you can see maybe, I don't know, you, you have Effectable Dryad Arbor, you got a Bloodgast in there, now you're cooking, you know? You're really, you got a Grizzlebrand. Now what? So, I, I don't know. I, th I think it's just, like, a card that seems like it's asking to be broken, and maybe no one even thought yet that it's asking to be broken. So so that's why I picked it. That's great. I like that card a lot. What's your other one? Uh, my other sleeper is Nettlesist, which is a three-mana artifact equipment with living weapon. So it comes in with a germ attached to it. And the equipped creature has plus one, plus one for each artifact and or enchantment you control. And it has equipped two. So, as many of the listeners may or may not know, I played a ton of Affinity before uh, the Mox Opal ban. And I think before I started playing Jeskai Control a lot more, I played a ton of Affinity. Uh, the deck is near and dear to my heart. And I think that this is a big upgrade to Master of Ethereum, because this just means that your deck gets to play more Cranial Platings in your Master of Ethereum slot. And what really makes this card a sleeper is that I don't know whether or not this card, like, can actually overcome the fact that Mox Opal isn't around anymore. Because mm -hmm. it's kind of a big hurdle. The, the, the Affinity deck, as we knew it beforehand, really relied on this critical mass of cheap artifacts and Mox Opal putting it a turn ahead in some of the games where the matchups were really close, because it's just really hard to undo a whole turn of advantage for the whole game. Moxen are very powerful. Uh, but I think that with... If there's a way it happens, I think it's the addition of artifact lands to the format, maybe some reimagining of how the deck is built as far as what the threats are, if there's more cards with actual affinity, now that you have artifact lands... Um, you know, Arcbound Ravager gets better because you can sacrifice more things. But a card like Nettlesist, it gives the deck a lot more staying power. And then it now has a threat that leaves behind possibly your best card in Cranial Plating uh, on a creature that's already just one of your best cards in being plus one plus one for all the artifacts you control. Yeah, that card sounds exciting. It's going to be interesting to see if that can help push Affinity over or see when, you know, if Affinity comes back, if we get enough cards for it one day. I could easily see that one taking the Ethereum spot. Yeah. Because, like, Frogmite is not very exciting. But, it you know, even if you cast it for, like, one or zero, not very exciting. But when you're able to slap things on the Frogmite that make it into, like, a 10-power creature or an 8-power creature, it's a little more exciting. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty strong. So, I, I'm... I, I think that it's a sizable enough upgrade to what was out there that... It could really do some damage, and uh, it's definitely a card that when I spend some more time with new ideas in Modern and I go back to playing decks that I really 
enjoyed that might have gotten new updates, which I think is like a huge win for the Modern Horizon sets when they come out, is that I always feel like I want to go and see like what the new cards that came out were that mix into my old archetypes that I like that maybe I haven't played in a while. That, you know, maybe like renting some of these on Moto and booting up Mana Traders and booting up some leagues and trying to figure out some affinity decks is uh is definitely on, on my list. I think this card really will do a lot of damage. Yeah. If that if that works. If that shell exists, this card's in it. Yep, I agree. It's exciting. Let's talk about reprints. So this category is talking about two of our cards that have been reintroduced uh to magic in the form of modern these cards were in magic before but not legal and modern and i'll take the lead here with imperial recruiter uh, imperial recruiter is two and a red for a human one one and you search your deck for a creature with power two or less and put it in your hand uh, imperial recruiter has seen a lot of play in older formats of things like painter servant as a way to enable that combo and i think it's going to continue to do that sort of thing here in modern uh the sahili cat combo deck was one that it was always kind of you know laughed at and joked at before and was you know it was the splinter twin of the format but you have to do everything at you know sorcery speed and they see it coming and while that's all still true the deck actually got a pretty huge upgrade over you know the whole kind of quarantine age and not a whole lot of people have noticed or seen to respect it that the deck has gained a second combo without having to give up anything for the first so it has gained glass pool mimic gabe which is the battle for Zendikar, or the Zendikar, sorry, double-faced uh, clone that's a land on the back. And what this allows you to do is you have that plus Feldar Guardian lets you go infinite. And with Orak Champion in our deck as a card that's quite good with all our blink effects we already have, this allows you to create infinite life. And w- what's happened is, is the deck has kind of created not only another way to win, but a way to generate more advantage and stay in games longer. And it has increased its ETB creature count by a lot. So it plays things like Skyclave Apparition now as a way to kind of manage the battlefield and work well with our clones and work well with our Sahilis and our Felidars. And that has been a huge get for the deck. So I think Imperial Recruiter actually allows your deck to be super consistent at generating the infinite life combo. And generally, once we have infinite life, killing them is kind of a, uh, you know, a task that we get to do. I'm sure we can figure out a way once we have all the time. But... I think this card does a lot for that and enables those extra combos and lets you just have that extra bit of resiliency. People have kind of moved away from Reflector Mage in this sort of deck, but I think that sort of thing could come back. And then taking a step back from that specific example, I think it slots in so perfectly. Uh, just modern at large, there this opens up so many possibilities. Like we've seen Taxes deck in the past. Um, you know, those decks are really good at locking people out and they have a lot of creatures that fall into this category. We got a new one with Sanctum Prelate, which we might be talking about here. And... Imperial Recruiter gets all these cards and really just increases the consistency of your deck a lot. And that's before we even talk about humans, where it does search up some of the most important cards. Thalia, Meddling Mage, Thalia's Lieutenant. Um, those cards are huge in the and Reflector Mage as well, again, in the humans modern deck. And while maybe this card's a tad slow right now, uh, it totally could become a card that sees play. And it is also such a good combo enabler that I expect this card to make a big wave in modern at some point, if not right away. Yeah, it's it's a really powerful effect, and I've seen you know countless deck lists on on my Twitter feed of people talking about playing like Kiki Court again, or I actually hadn't seen anyone talk about that uh, Feldar Sahili stuff. I think that's really interesting. Definitely a deck where it kind of has always been getting by on trying to like piece together plus one piece of material, and eventually I'll like I'll like get ahead enough to to win or buy enough time to to win that if you can 
shave off copies of random things for your and so like your your outside Sahili combos. Uh like Imperial Recruiter really helps you do that and uh you know being able to minus if you have a recruiter in play, play a Sahili, minus on the recruiter, go get Felidar, cast Felidar, blink Sahili, that's just game, right? Yeah. So that's that's actually pretty huge. It's definitely like I don't know, tutoring is just such a powerful effect. You uh you can't you can't overstate how good it is to find the right card at the right time and what it enables. Um, and it really is one with a lot of implications, even without, uh, you know, necessarily like Painter Servant Grindstone, which was like, it was the best red way to find any piece of a, of a two card combo other than maybe gamble in legacy for a really long time. Uh, like it's, it's still a real powerful card. And so I, I yeah, I think this is a great one. Yep. My other card is Shardless Agent. Uh, this is one blue-green for a human artifact creature, 3-2 with Cascade. Um, Shardless Agent is, you know, best known for its time and uh, legacy of Shardless Bug, where we're hitting, you know, ancestral visions and things of that nature. Um, Shardless Agent is one that, you know, a lot of people were really hyped for the first time for Modern Horizons, really hoping it was in the set. Didn't quite make the cut then, but now it's here. And I think it's quite good. We talked about, you know, that domain deck, the tribal deck earlier. I actually think that deck benefits a lot from Shardless Agent, I think, you know, just finding your Tribal Flames, finding these big creatures, kind of getting them on the play, uh, into play, sorry, is very good. And I, I think Shardless Agent's going to see play in a lot of various decks. And the joke is, you know, always a human, it's, it's, it's a human or whatever, but the human's deck is a lot of times about assembling critical mass. And maybe if Imperial Crew is a little too slow, Shardless Agent has a chance to really come on the board and kind of slam the door. Hitting a Meddling Mage off it, hitting a Thalia, is going to be really powerful, and that's before we even get to cyborg creatures like Gaddick, Teague, etc., etc. So I expect her to see some out of play there, and there's the Ancestral Visions um, kind of cheating with Suspend cards. We got a new set of Suspend cards. We got like a Bribery in the set, so maybe that's what we can do with this one. We have the Classics. We have the Profane Tutor. So I, I think there's a lot of different things you can do with Shardless. Uh, I know I posted on Twitter after you, you actually kind of told me it was like Crashing Footfalls with Shardless Agent. It's just so much power on the board immediately when you play it that it really does kind of swing the game if that's hit. So I think this sort of card looks to be great and maybe even helps as we're told decks take that next step they need. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, there's like a list of things in my head where it's like, is this a thing you want to do with Shardless Agent? Yes or no? And like, is this thing you want to do in Modern? And one of them where I'm like, yeah, I'm not really sure it's the thing I want to do, is build my deck so that I'm Shardless Agenting into a draw three. Because Modern as a format hasn't historically been about, you know, just attrition or card advantage, as much as a format like Legacy has, where that is a, a very dominant sequence, or at least it was for a long period of time. Like, the, the Premier Midrange deck was basically, like, Jund, and then it was a bunch of cards that accumulated some amount of advantage. Um, Two-for-ones like Hymn to Turok, or... Uh, you know, using Force Will to defend itself, and then uh, big draw spells like Ancestral Visions. Charles Agent, however, like a 2-2 body for 3, doesn't go nearly as far in Modern unless you're making your deck make it go far, as it did in Legacy. And so, like, you, you really need to know what it is you're trying to accomplish with that. I really like that idea of playing it in, like, a Domain Zoo deck, because um, that is one where all of your spells are going to be proactive, you're always going to hit something major. Like, even your whiffs are probably not that bad. 
Like, all of your spells just are ones you want to cast, like, on turn three. Uh, like, you're fine with it. Whereas sometimes, you know, if you're playing a deck that has a bunch of Ancestral Visions, then maybe you have, like, some Drown in the Lock in your deck, or you have, like, some reactive spells you don't want to Cascade into. It makes it really rough. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I don't think you can build this as a reactive card for the most part. I think if you're visioning, you need to be like hitting other proactive cards as well. So yeah, it's gonna be this needs to be this. your Bloodbraid Elf. It can't be your Electrolyze because if you build it, so it's like if if it's not really Bloodbraid Elfing where it's applying pressure immediately and you're just getting your clean two good cards out of it, then I think you're doing good things with the card. But if you're building so that you know, oh, I'm going to, like, draw cards, or I'm just going to be able to, like, plus one by answering this, like, creature in play sometimes, you're going to wind up wind up finding up the, wind up finding out that that card is just not worth the slot. It's not worth the mana you're spending on it. And it's it's not pushing you far enough ahead. Yep, I agree. Abe, what's your first uh, reprint? My first reprint is Goblin Bombardment. Which is a one and a red enchantment that says sacrifice a creature, deal one damage to any target. Uh, I really love Goblin Bombardment. I think that it just enables a lot of really cool things. There's there was a deck in Legacy a long time ago that Sam Black played at like some opens uh, and and made really popular. Pretty little because it was so cool, but it was like a Mardu deck. It had a bunch of blood ghast and lingering souls and carrion feeder and I think it also used faithless looting as its way to to generate a lot of card advantage there. Uh, but you know it was a deck full of recursive creatures. It had goblin bombardment and it would apply a lot of pressure that way and then be able to like throw its old board at the end to uh, to kill things. And I've come I've messed around. I know I talked about that zombies project I was working on for fun and brewing, and I feel like. As good as Carrion Feeder is, when I didn't have a way to benefit from sacrificing a creature, or I didn't have an easy way to sacrifice a creature, my deck was way worse than when uh, it did. And I think that giving Modern another premium, like, you know, probably top two, maybe top three sacrifice outlets in the game, um, putting them into Modern, we saw what Ultra of Dementia can do to the format with Hokak. Um you know, it's a very powerful effect to be able to sacrifice a creature for zero mana, and I, I'm pretty excited to see what can be done with this and what cool things it enables, just because I think that kind of gameplay is, is very neat. Yeah, I actually, I built, and I ultimately ended up scrapping because I couldn't quite figure out the pieces that were missing, but I, I built a deck with this for Card Kingdom this week, and it was like this plus Mayhem Devil plus Blood Gas and that kind of stuff that you were talking about. And I, I think that, you know, there's definitely something there, and cards like Mayhem Devil... Um, really help you actually kill them with the ping. You know, not that that's like the main goal, it also helps you control the board as well. So I think there's probably something to this kind of card in modern for sure. Yeah, I mean, just being able to sacrifice a creature for free already is so good. They've decided they've stopped doing it in standard anymore because the last time it was in standard with Nantuko Husk, it was just too good and created the possibility for a deck that was an absolute monster in Rally the Ancestors. And, uh, you know, the fact that we're getting more of that, where it's definitely a modern power level thing, you know, it's a permanent that you pay mana to put down and then adds this rule to the game for you. Uh, and also forces you to play a bunch of things that are not necessarily uh, powerful on their own. Find ways to enable them. It, it's, it's a card that has a lot of really exciting possibilities for me. So, 
Uh, my next reprint is Solitary Confinement, which I've seen a lot of people kind of worried about, and maybe rightfully so. I think Solitary Confinement is one of the like more central cards to one of the, I guess, only, maybe not only prison decks, but one of the, like, more unique prison decks of, of magic, which is the Enchantress decks. Um, solitary Confinement, for those of you who don't know, is two and a white for an enchantment that says at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice Solitary Confinement unless you discard a card, skip your draw step, you have Shroud, which means you cannot be targeted, and prevent all damage that would be dealt to you. So you can't be targeted. Uh, you can't be dealt damage unless something is changing that rule, like saying that damage can't be prevented with a skull crack or something. Um, and you can't draw cards uh, during your draw step, and you have to discard cards. So it kind of bleeds you dry, but the way that this card works, for those of you unfamiliar with an enchanter strategy, uh, it plays cards like Enchantress's Presence, which is also now in Modern through... Uh, through Modern Horizons 2. Uh, so whenever you... Let's say whenever you cast an enchantment spell, draw a card, there is, uh, you know... Core Spirit Dancer does this in Historic if you're a player who maybe only plays uh, plays Arena. Um, but yeah, so you do that for all types of enchantments, and you kind of build yourself a pillow fort that gives you time to set up and draw cards, and then when you're about to die, you, like, slam down your solitary confinement, and then you make sure you like, are able to draw enough cards to feed it and advance yourself forward into winning the game. And I don't know, I just think that it would be hard to touch on the things that are being added from history into modern through the set without talking about the fact that this is, on its own, a lock piece asking to be built. Yeah, that's true. I think Sterling Grove is a big addition to this as well, right? Like, yeah. Uh, Giving your other enchantments, uh, I believe it's Shroud, just makes it so hard to interact with them. And I think if we just had this card, very easily could you, you know, you could Assassin's Trophy and Abrupt Decay. There's a lot of things that we now have that can kill this card. But once you had Sterling Grove, it really is challenging to break through all those piling up pieces that kind of hold you back. And I, I think this sort of card is going to actually see a, a decent amount of play. Whether it's good enough or not, it's so hard to know because we haven't ever had anything like this even be close to powerful enough for modern. There just haven't been enough low mana enchantress type cards that, you know, draw cards for enchantments. And I'm excited to see what happens with this new, uh, yeah. new era. It's also worth noting that like the legacy enchantress deck, and I think all of the enchantress decks that, you know, people might remember uh, or look up have Sarah's sanctum in them. And that card generates a lot of mana. Yeah. <laughs> like that is, that is quite literally just the white guy's cradle. And you know, there's not something that really makes the deck blast off as much as uh, as maybe Sarah Sanctum does. But and I think your only ramp enchantment, unless Wild Growth is in Modern, and I don't recall. Well, there's a new one that gives you any color of mana for uh, each enchantment you have, and it actually goes infinite with another blue enchantment that locks people out. Because wait, really? A creature, yeah. It is. So I'm pulling up right now. There's Sanctum Weaver. Which is one and a green for enchantment creature Dryad. Tap at X mana of any one color where X number of enchantments you control. It's an O2. And then there's a blue enchantment that does something, but basically it's like blue untap it. A, a creature. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and the 
It's the one where it's like blue tap it, blue untap it. Something like that. Uh, yeah, I forgot yeah. the name of the card, but I think it was in. It might have been in the last. No, I think it's a card from Kamigawa or something. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It's in modern, yeah. and it goes infinite there. But but Sanctum Weaver is a way to actually sort of power out your enchantments. Um, and so yeah, with it being although that's one where right, you know, someone could someone could interact with that with a fatal push or a lightning bolt. It's not it, that much more power. It makes your deck more devoted druidy. Where if you have this card on turn two and it doesn't get answered, your opponent might just die. But on the flip side, if it does get answered, that's true. It, it makes Sterling Grove even stronger, right? Like if you pay yeah. this on turn three after a Grove, obviously that's not the optimal quote unquote curve out. But now they can't interact with your insane mana source, and I think that uh, this deck has some real potential. Just yeah, they they also it seems like they did decide that this was something they wanted to have. Because there is that um, that man enchantment creature. There's also Sithis Hand of the Harvest, which is a legendary enchantment creature nymph. It's a 1-2. Whenever you cast an enchantment spell, you gain a life and draw a card. And there's Enchantress's Presence. And they, they just put a lot of very powerful enchantments in the set. And kind of push this theme as uh, something that they want to see uh, play out. So, yeah, I don't know... You know, I it, I can't say exactly how it's going to play out. It's definitely something I'm interested in. I think that, you know, if I could play a sweet Enchantress deck and do stuff like that, I want to. Because, <laughs> because I think there's something really fun about, you know, drawing a bunch of cards and balancing, like, a Solitary Confinement or, like, floating between them. Um, but, you know, drawing your whole deck is just kind of a powerful feeling. And drawing, like, four cards every time you cast a spell is also a powerful feeling. And I like it, so... Yeah, they also had that new, and, you know, sorry to kind of go on this thing forever, but I doubt we'll talk about this card later, but Out of Time, like the new board wipey-esque uh, enchantment uh, with Vanishing on it. So it's, I, I don't remember the old card, but there was a, a thing that would enter and it would vanish and exile some creatures, like Parallax Wave maybe as the name. And now we have yeah. that. And now Out of Time sort of kind of fits in this whole, like, just continuously buying time. The enchantment creatures stick around and it, it just looks to be a very solid strategy. And it looks like it's going to have very polarizing matchups. Like, I imagine humans would be a very good matchup for this kind of deck. Uh, I, like, you would be happy to play against humans, I should say. But I imagine something that's trying to cheat out a Grizzle Brand maybe a bit of a harder time to interact with that sort of deck. So, yeah. But hey, that's that's cool. We don't want something to just be, you know, inserted as just the best thing. It's probably enough on reprints, oldie, oldie cards. I mean, who needs old cards, Abe? We have new cards. And let's talk about some of our favorites from that. So we're just going to talk about some of our favorite cards from the set. This sort of spot's really just cards that Abe and I like. They might not be the best card in the set, but there's something. And my first one is Break the Ice, which was actually spoiled earlier today. It's black, black for a sorcery that says destroy target land that is snow or could produce colorless, and you can overload it for four black, black. Um, and the reason I like this card is I don't like the snow. I don't like that snow became such a thing last time. And we had Astrolabe and everything, and I couldn't play with my cool lands. I know this is going to sound silly, but I just didn't like that. It felt weird to me. It was like this weird sort of like complaint thing I had, or isn't quite rational, but I didn't like it. I liked Redain, if you remember our Severior uh, Kaldheim. I remember telling Ali, I love Redain, because Redain means we won't play with only Snow Basics. And this sort of card does the same thing. Because of its second line of text, where it mentions being able to blow up colorless producing lands. So this is actually a solid piece of interaction for Tron decks and things of that nature. And so because it sees playing the Tron decks, it makes snow decks have a real cost. 
because I, I imagine a lot of black uh, green X decks are going to play this card because it's black black. It's essentially sinkhole against Tron, and that matchup is always so hard. And you would play Fulminator Mage before, and while you can't rebuy this with Liliana's or Kelgon's commands, does come down a whole certain whole hold on, whole turn sooner. Sorry, and I think that's a really big gain. So I, I love Break the Ice. I think it's an awesome card. Yeah, uh, I was really surprised to see just a black black uh, sorcery that destroyed a land. I, I thought that. Like, even though there's a lot of limitation to it, something that close to Sinkhole, and also something that, like you said about Redain, kind of has that, like, hey, Snowlands have a deck-building cost now. You can't just play them whenever. Uh, like, I think that both are really strong. You know, when when if you sign up and you're like, oh, I want to play with my Snowlands, I think they're so sick, they're awesome... You play your snow deck, and someone is just able to board in sinkhole against you. You're gonna think twice about whether or not you actually like some regular basic planes and islands or whatever in your blue white control deck, or uh, you know, if you're someone, maybe you're playing on thin ice genuinely in your uh, in your like enchantress deck that you're building with all the new sweet cards. Uh, you know, that's not as free as it as it was before this card existed, and yeah, that adds a lot. Um, maybe not doesn't add a lot visibly to the format, but I think it it puts a lot of pressure and makes a decision happen, or, or you can bring it up and say, "Listen, you can't just do exactly whatever you want. There are rules around playing Snowlands versus not Snowlands. You should probably have a reason because this card is good enough as a sideboard card against you know a deck that's as popular as Tron or Tron variants or Snow decks and Snow variants." Like, it's good against non-basic lands, or rather just non-plane lands, um, that you you might just run into it, and you can't just do whatever you want. Yeah, people would play, like, decks that had cards like Tybalt, that would take cards, and they're like, hey, you should play Snow Basic, so if you hit, like, an Icefang Quaddle, you get the, you know, the Death Touch part. And it's like, oh, that's true. And I don't like that, so I like that there's yeah. more stuff for this. Also, I'm gonna keep it a buck, Abe, I like blowing up lands. I like Ponza... I like Tanglewire is like one of my favorite cards. Thalia is one of my favorite cards. If you don't notice, I, I like the game being kind of like hard to play and janky or you're trying to hobble our pieces together and you like just kick them and kick them and kick them while they're down. I love that. Anyways, my other favorite card from the set is Obsidian Charmaw. Uh, it's a three red red for a dragon 4-4 four four that costs one less to cast for each land or opponent controls that could produce a colorless mana. This has flying, and an ETB destroy target non-basic land that opponent controls. So just a dragon that punishes you for playing lands that produce colorless. Um, and I think this card's actually going to see play in modern as well. But, uh, you know, it also blows up lands. I like it. And when you play this in Ponza, um, I think you can actually just turbo this out a lot of the time with something like Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl. And it blowing up a land is so huge because a lot of the times it's like a stone rain, right? Especially against the decks where it's very good. It comes down turn three, and it keeps on the back foot. But those decks always have a problem closing the door. Well, Obsidian Charmaw will close the door on them. And for decks like Jund, for example, that would play Stone Rain or Fulminator Mage, something like that, this is very often just that card still. But instead of, you know, having the ability to rebuy them, like I talked about earlier with some of the other cards, you get a 4-4 Flying Body that will clock them and make the game end. And not give them that time to rebuild for forever. So I, I like Obsidian Charmon. I think it actually has a real chance of seeing play. It's not just a thing that I enjoy. I think both these cards are Tron hate cards. 
uh, and they both are going to see a lot of play. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they'll see a lot of play until there's no reason to play them anymore. And if I know anything about Tron, it's that no matter how much you think people won't play it, people will play it. So I, I think both of these will have a, uh, a long... They also hate Affinity Decks too, right? Like, you blow up the Ink Moth, the Blink Moth. Oh, <laughs> Chill! Chill! Don't be giving it away! All of my artifact lands have Indestructible on them, actually. Oh, nice. I, I, also, I also started playing the game on turn four. No reason. <laughs> yeah, no. no. Yeah. See, so maybe we could just not do that to my nice Inkies and Blinkies. Alright, Abe, I'm going to offer you a trade. You can have Mox Opal in every deck you want in modern except your only lands can be the tapped indestructible artifact lands no man lands no nothing just those and you get mox opal you in yeah it's not worth no i tried all right you could have saved everyone in modern if you had their card back. i i wouldn't i don't think the deck is nearly as interesting without man without creature lands but uh, <laughs> yeah keep just keep that keep that dragon away right. from my nice blink moths that's all that's all i ask that's fair. You don't want me to blow up your man land and then block all your creatures for the rest of the game unless you sack everyone no. around? Oh, no, okay. I don't. Actually, Dude. that would suck. <laughs> don't do that. Anyways, I love blowing up lands. Abe, what's some of your favorite cards? Uh, So, I'm going to start with one that I felt like I couldn't put it in any other column, which was Counterspell. Because I just do be loving the idea of casting some Counterspell. I'm actually not as rave like and i like as insanely excited as some people are about counterspell being a modern but i think that uh, the format has shown we might as well like it's mm -hmm. it's at the time where counterspell is such an iconic card and it feels weird to have to do all these things like playing logic not and like man saying that mana leak is the counterspell for the format is acceptable to me but with the way that things are and with you know how good the big mana strategies have been uh, especially going long uh, in you know the last few years, it feels really tough to to not let counterspell breathe a bit. And it's not like it's going to be oppressive. The game the, the games aren't really about pinpoint one for ones like counterspell uh, thrives in. So I am very excited to add the card to a lot of bad control decks and maybe hopefully even some good control decks. Lets you fight over. Tons of things you couldn't really fight over before. It, you can counter, like, discard spells in the mid-game. Um, you know, removal spells over threats that you're protecting, whereas normally your mana leaks and control mirrors couldn't be used that way because, you know, path eggs only cost one, and uh, they've you've got 100 mana. So, uh, I, I think it's just one of the bigger additions. Maybe there'll be some annoying garbage going on with uh, Isochron Scepter and Counterspell. That could be a thing. But I don't really think it's... I don't think that's going to be that bad. I don't think people really are doing that. We have a lot of artifact hate in Modern. Even, yeah. Even, even with no artifact decks, people still have a lot of artifact hate. Yeah, so. and even without <laughs> without exactly, like, Abrupt Decay even. Like, you know, it's it's not... It's hard to leave up two mana every turn. I've played a lot of Control in Modern. It's hard to leave up two mana every turn. It really uh, it's is. Hard, it's hard to line up a reactive spell like Counterspell even like it's hard to line up my mana leaks and logic knots all the time uh, a lot of decks are getting under you so uh yeah it, but it is still nice to be able to play with just such an iconic card again and uh you know a card that otherwise you don't ever get to play because legacy is kind of a thing of the past 
uh, as far as tournaments go, unless you're playing specifically legacy tournaments, and even then, Counterspell's not that great. But it's one that feels so much like magic to be tapping blue-blue and casting Counterspell and so iconic that uh, I felt like it was worth putting it as my favorite, even though I kind of... I was like, is it cringe to put Counterspell as my favorite? I feel like a lot of people are expecting me to because I'm kind of a control guy. I like countering spells. I like playing reactive games. But you know what? Uh, I'll be a little cringe and say it's Counterspell. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to add on that card. I thought, I thought it was going to be one of your hits. Abe messaged me a little behind the scenes. He's like, I'm such a boomer. I keep wanting to put old cards in slots. And I was like, oh, he's trying to put Counterspell in the hits again. He's trying to he's trying to get Counterspell yeah, in there. See, and that's where it was going to be. But then I was like, you know what? You know what? I'm going to... I'm going to... I'm going to... We made favorite slots for a reason. I'm going to have to put it there. That's fair. I, I think Counterspell is going to see play. There was a lot of debate at the beginning of the... It was, it was kind of previewed before the rest of the cards, and it was kind of like, will this actually be good enough for modern? I think the answer is yes, but it's not going to be oppressive. So I'm excited yeah. to see what it does, and I'm glad those blue mages with their celestial colonnades finally have a chance to play magic God with the bless. rest of us. Yeah, it probably won't work out, but hey, you've got a chance now. You can cash well into Archmages, the Cryptic, and the Snappy Archmages. Wow, you're really doing it. What's your other card? Uh, my other card is Moderation. Which uh, is enchantment for one white blue. And it says two things on it, two additional rules for you. Uh, one is you can't cast more than one spell each turn. And the second one is whenever you cast a spell, draw a card. Such a cool card. It is such a cool card. I think Sam Black absolutely killed it with this one. He talked about it, um, I know, a bit on his Twitch stream and definitely did a thread on Twitter talking about how he kind of had the vision for the design, what he wanted to accomplish with it. Uh, and I think it's really one of the cooler card designs and one of the more successful designs that I've seen in a long time. I really like what Sam was able to do here. It's a card that... Uh, I'm kind of parroting what he said, but he said that he didn't want to make a card that necessarily was just for competitive play or just for casual play or that fit some mold of what a card needed to be. He just wanted to make a card that played well on its own and left a lot to the player to explore, and this card does exactly that. Within, like, a few hours of being previewed, I had already seen, you know, debate, is this card great? Is this card terrible? How do you break it? Like, is the drawback worth it? Am I giving it to my opponent? Am I keeping it for myself? There's just so much talk about how do you play with this card, and I think figuring that out and that being a question that everyone's kind of asking uh, that isn't very clear and you don't really have... You have to construct something new in your mind around how you want to play with this card is just probably the peak of like what magic is. You know, it, you see a card and you're like, oh, I want to play with that. How am I going to make that card great? Uh, and this card really hit the nail on the head for me. I think... What I would do is probably play it with an addition, with like a symmetric rule of law effect. Something like that would be really good, where then you're just. Now both players have the same bad rule of can't cast more than one spell, but you get to draw a card every time you cast a spell and they don't. Um, but there's a lot of ways you can do it. There's a lot of different things you can make happen with a card like Moderation. And. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite designs for just the reason that it, it there's so much there. Yeah, it is a super cool card. 
I'm excited to see what happens. I'm excited to see how over time, you know, do we get more things that face stuff out? Would that be useful with this card? How can I like a break this card, for example? It's going to be super interesting to see. And also I think it's going to lead to some really interesting games. You know, your opponent's only going to do, you know, in theory, one thing on each of your turns, but they have enough gas to actually keep up and doing that in theory as well. So with the extra card each turn, they much harder to flood out. And I assume you'd build your deck in a way that would help with this. Maybe you have some, you know, Academy Ruin type card that there's something you can rebuy and do over and over again. And instead of being, you know, forced to be stuck with drawing that one card, now you're still moving through your deck. So I think moderation is super cool. I'm super excited to see people play with it and to play against it. Honestly, I think it's going to be a really cool card to play against. So, yeah, I, I think it's important to like, if you're not someone who really gets what we're talking about as far as like, why is this card so strong or, or you think it like looks like a bad card. Think about the fact that the last rule card that I can think of that was like, you know, printed in a way that looked like it would be playable was Fires of Invention. Like it says, you can't cast spells on not your turn. You get this insane upside. And this is a card that you could build around similarly, but because it doesn't play so broken with mana and, you know, it has a very, a much bigger restriction, I think, than Fire's Invention, which uh, is, I'm not going to say non-existent, but is significantly less than the uh, the downside on Moderation. Uh, and Moderation creates so many cool play patterns as well, right? Like, Moderation forces you to only cast one spell but in theory you're gonna have a gluttony of spells because you're drawing so many cards right and since you're drawing so many cards it's like how do i want to use my cards when do i want to use my cards so i want to deploy this now do i want to you know brazen and borrow this do i want to do that and all those sort of things i think lead to some really interesting gameplay and i think that's why this card's getting so touted right compared to something like fire dimension where it's just like all right you get a free spell after playing this and then the next turn you get two five drops figure out what's the best stuff to do with that go you know and that's much less exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so much more open-ended than Fires, but cards like that, when they are made to be good and you find ways to be good, are, you know, possibly the best card in the deck. So, yeah, uh, yeah Moderation, big winner for me. I, I think that card's awesome. I won't have any Moderation when it comes to making a bunch of those decks. Ha ha ha. Anyways, hopeful. So our next category is hopeful. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, these are cards that we are kind of hopeful are going to make an impact in here. And so this is kind of an awkward moment where you might be thinking, how is that not different than favorite? And favorite can be stuff, you know, like, while I did think my cards were favorites and they were cards that were, you know, just kind of strong, uh, they're not always like that. Sometimes there are things like moderation that are maybe a bit more expensive that, you know, aren't going to see play. And hopeful are ones that we really hope are going to actually get to play with. Uh, and sometimes they're even a little tricky. And I, I would argue sometimes trick people. And that's what my first one is here. So Ragavan the Nimble Pilfer is red for a legendary creature, Monkey Pirate 2-1. And when Ragavan deals combat damage to a player, you create a treasure token and exile the top card of that player's library. Until end of turn, you may cast that card. And it also has the dash mechanic, which means you can dash it from your hand and you cast it and it has haste and returns to your hand at the end of turn. So you can dash the monkey out you know, on an empty board and keep protecting Ragavan if you're willing to uh, you know, pay that extra mana. Ragavan has been a card that has been very much talked about since its uh, printing, or I guess its introduction into our minds. And in Legacy, it seems to be a card that's actually going to do a lot of play. It's like another Delver. Uh, the treasure is so important with Ragavan because you can't actually cast the spell 
using any color mana, so you often need the treasure. But decks like Delver get a huge mana advantage, and having a treasure is so powerful. And if you hit something like a Ponder or like their Delver or anything along that nature, Ragavan really starts to snowball in like a Dreadhorde Arcanist way. And I think it has a lot of hope there. Now for stand, I'm sorry for modern. I think it's much harder for Ragavan. So while Ragavan will still be pretty strong, I think if you hit someone and you get a treasure, I think you much more need your spells to benefit off the treasure. And I think it's gonna be much harder to get Ragavan across. I think Ragavan's gonna get caught up in the middle of the battlefield a lot, gets outsized very quickly, and it's a legendary creature in red. And red is typically a color of aggression in modern and less so card advantage. Now, Ragavan goes into different decks than a thing like Goblin God, but we see how, you know, I've been playing a lot of Burn recently on Moto Abe, and I'm sure you've played a lot in the past from talking to you. You always get one hit in with Goblin God, right? That's basically true. And if you get a second hit in with Goblin God, you're often very ecstatic, and your win rate goes up astronomically, right? You got four damage from your one card. How many times is Ragavan going to actually hit your opponent? And it needs to hit once to break even on mana, if you think of the mana as the big advantage of this card, right? Or maybe even the artifact it creates. And then it has to hit again. I just think there's a lot that's going to stack up against Ragavan. And Ragavan is a card I really want to play with, so I hope that I'm wrong here. But, man, this card is so cool and does take over games. But I think it's really hard for it to do it, so... Yeah, it's it's a card that's actually so sick that I I wish it was as good as... Like, I don't know, people were saying, like, oh, it's, like, the next Death Rite Shaman, but it's a lot harder to... Getting a 2-1 across and connecting is not trivial. It's, <laughs> it is a hard thing to do in any format, even in a format that can often be as, uh, as non-Battlefield-centric as, uh, as modern can be. But... I do think that it's a. I, I agree, it's a card that I would put as hopeful for, for myself too. It's just such a sweet card, and Ragavan is such a. I remember loving just picking up Ragavan tokens off of like GP, like tables, and I remember there's one story with my friend Niraj. Uh, like a, it was the Aethervolt Sealed Grand Prix in Orlando. We're like back at the hotel, and he's telling me about his day one, and he had this judge call about, like, when a Ragavan went away, and he's just, like, talking to, the, to me about it, and he's like, yeah, like, the Ragavan's gone. That's the rules? Like, that's just what happens. And we just sat there, like, both drunk, just saying, like, Ragavan, that's the rules, over and over each other. I love Ragavan so much, I don't think this card's good. I think you just can't do it. I think it's like saying that Zergo Bell Smasher is gonna have a chance. And I just, I don't know that it's there. I love Ragavan, though. It's so funny to me. I, I've seen a lot of people say it's the best red one drop of all time. And if it's not the best, it's the second best. And I don't think that's true. I don't even think that's true in the context of like the decks that it goes into. I really think Ragavan might be like a sideboard card for some sort of red deck that needs attrition that doesn't have a lot of creatures. So I don't even know what this deck looks like. But if you had a deck that could use the mana, doesn't have a lot of creatures, and then you could like sideboard in Ragavan to so like, hit and then you know get some treasure tokens i think that could be really powerful and really cool and successful that's a big ask the the scenario i just gave you is very hard to set up yeah and it's also one where like i mentioned earlier we have a lot of cards that answer artifacts and there are things that like in theory your deck's going to use the artifacts or the stack or somehow and things like a braid are going to incidentally catch ragavan and those cards still see play in modern you know and it's just so hard so i i hope ragavan sees play and I want to play with that card, but it has such a big hill to climb. Um, yeah, like it, it's competing with like 
Burn doesn't even play four copies of Grimlock Mancer. You know, like yeah, it, it's hard to fit it in. I do think it's really cool that it's legendary. You can do some cool Mox Amber stuff with it, probably. Yep. Like maybe that that lets you get your Boros Legends deck closer and closer uh, to to existing and trying to do its thing. We have um, Captain Sissy now. Yeah. We're, we're getting there. Uh, and and I, I do think that the subject about Legacy is really cool. I like hadn't thought about playing in Legacy because I don't really think about playing Legacy that often. But uh, a mana is a huge like is huge in that format. You can just do so much for one mana. Uh, and a card is so huge in that format because, you know, all your cards can do so much for one mana <laughs> that uh, it definitely seems like kind of maybe Dreadhorde Arcanist-esque in the sense that it is a creature that just generates value for attacking because you're almost never attacking with it. Uh, the boards are often so clear in Legacy that it's almost never going to be blanked if you're just playing, you know, an Isabelver deck. Yeah, if you, like, daze their, their Tarmogoyf or whatever, or any two-drop, right? Like, now you've hit them, and you got that treasure back, so it, hard, it becomes so hard for them to develop yeah. the next threat. It's like Delver on one, where it's like, okay, like, if this goes unchecked and flips, it's over for you almost. You know, you're, you're going to be way on the back foot, except this is like, I don't have to flip it. You can't actually just come back by finding a removal spell eventually. We're an entirely different dynamic. I'm going to have twice as much mana as you for the first, like, three turns. Yeah. You know, like... And it's also this is going to actually snowball you. It's not going to be a wild nacodle. The game's going to be over. I'm going to draw three cards or make three mana, and you're going to take six in the time that I'm playing protect the queen with this. And uh, yeah, now you're just dead because I've cast like two of your ponders yeah. and set myself up. Truly insane in that format. Uh, my other hopeful is this card. A card I think that actually has a much better chance of seeing play. Not as negative as Ragavan, but this is Grist the Hunger Tide. It's one black green legendary planeswalker. Grist has three loyalty, and then we have a weird passive ability. So as long as Grist the Hunger Tide isn't on the battlefield, so everywhere but the battlefield, Grist is actually a one-one insect creature in addition to its other types. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But you can plus one Grist to create a 1-1 one, one black and green insect creature token that mills a card. If an insect was milled this way, put a loyalty counter on Grist and repeat this process. So plus one, mill a card. If you hit an insect, you get to keep going. Probably a little unlikely, but you know if you want to have an insect tribal deck, this is the walker for you. Uh, it's minus two is you may sacrifice a creature when you do destroy target creature or planeswalker. Minus five, each opponent loses life equal to the number of creature cards in your graveyard. So... Grist, I think, powerful three-mana walker comes down. It starts to build up a battlefield and protecting itself. Even, you know, you don't need to ever hit another one. Just plus one, make a one-one. And being at uh, four loyalty makes it fairly safe on the play in modern, especially on the back of something like a Birds of Paradise. And the minus two is actually, I think, very good. Um, you know, you get to kill, like, uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor, any creature they have. And by the way, I just realized with the plus one, you can actually hit another Grist. So by having Grist in your deck, you'll sometimes randomly spike and get a second insect. You know, that's just so absurd. Uh, and all that's really cool. But, and that, that's what makes this card the next part even playable and worth talking about. It's a creature in all the other zones. So, like I mentioned, you know, the plus in the mill, it's a creature. You can green send Zenith for it. You can Eladon Recall. You can Pact for it. You can collect a company into this. You can buy this back with effects. It also dodges things, like Force Negation. Like, this card's maybe not one that you would think about being in a, a Force Negation card that you, like, would want to hit. But, like, what if they have a Teferi, right? You can't force this. It's a creature. Force Negation says non-creature. And little things like that come up a lot with this card. 
in a lot of different ways where you can court a calling to this into a deck like Yawgmoth that could really use the extra creatures lying around or really, you know, doesn't mind the sacrificing of a creature. So I, I think Grist is actually super powerful. It's going to see a lot of play and it's going to ask you to build your decks in very interesting ways. And I, I think this card is just good. But yeah, it asks a lot. It's like you have to figure it out. So I'm hopeful. That's why I didn't make it hit, but it was so close yeah. to hit. Yeah, the, the puzzle on the card is how do you make it... Because, you know, it's not... It's not the most exciting, but it is a very acceptable rate for the card it is. It's not like, you know, it, it's not Oko, and it's not uh, Teferi here at time. Like, you it's, can not, it's not, it's not any longer. of the really... <laughs> you can. But it's, the, it's not until you get that first line of text in the text box that the card starts to be very interesting, and it's incredibly interesting. I think it's, it's one where there's... Figuring out the ways to use that line of text well for you and the ways that that makes the card play differently and using that to your advantage is, you know, the whole ballgame to making this card cool and and also just the whole ballgame when it comes to, you know, will this card be a, a card that sees a bunch of play is how good are the effects for this and how good is it when you use those effects to, to get it. Yeah, I agree. Abe, what's your first hopeful? My first card I'm hopeful for is Thought Monitor, which is, uh, it's kind of in line with me picking Nettlesyst, because I just do be loving the affinity cards, but Thought Monitor is six and a blue for an artifact creature construct uh, with affinity for artifacts flying, and when it enters the battlefield, draw two cards. It's a two-two. So, basically, it is Thought Cast which is blue and four affinity for artifacts, draw two cards on uh, a two, two flyer that I don't know. It just, you know, man, let me, let me get my artifact lands out. Let me play my ornithopters and memnites and cranial platings. And also, you know, play this creature that draws me some more material along the way. That's really all I want. And I want this card to be good. I, it's, it's so hopeful for me. Uh, but it is pretty expensive. It's not a card you're going to be able to cast for one mana nearly as often as Thoughtcast, because Thoughtcast you could cast for one mana just about any time you, you know, let on, like, Springleaf Drum. A Springleaf Drum, uh, you know, two zero drops, uh, and, or maybe three zero drops, and, like, the Thoughtcast, you're there. You're drawing two cards on turn one. But the fact that this card is three cards in that context because... It is a body in and of itself, which matters a lot for a deck like Affinity. Um, makes it that much more powerful, even if it's a little harder to cast. And, you know, if that mana cost is something we can afford on, like, turn two or turn three and uh, in, in some of our best draws, or a card that we can reliably cast and cast another spell with uh, in the, like, mid to late game, some, like, turn four or turn five for Affinity, uh... Then you know it's it's a could be really really solid. It could be could be another piece of the puzzle pulling that deck back from uh, from the grave it was left in. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know enough about affinity and stuff to really speak to this, but card seems strong, seems promising, and yeah, I think it really does exemplify the hopeful where it's like it's got a lot of stuff, but you got a lot of hurdles to go through, and I don't know if we're ever gonna get to play with this card outside of draft, which just kind of sucks, but. Oh, well. I mean, I'll, hmm? I'll be playing with it for <laughs> sure. How about this? <laughs> In a tournament setting. 
Oh man, come on, don't do me like that. <laughs> Moto leagues are tournaments, right? <laughs> that depends how you will, Kruger. What's your uh, next one? <laughs> Hi, Will. Uh, my. <laughs> Uh, love Will. Uh, my next hopeful card is Unmarked Grave. Ooh, I is... love this one. Okay. Yeah. It is one and a black for a sorcery. You search your library for a non-legendary card, put that into your graveyard, and then shuffle your library. So, this is a card where, you know, it obviously combos with Persist that is being printed into the format with this set. It's a new card that just puts a non-legendary creature from your graveyard onto the battlefield with a minus one, minus one card, or minus one, minus one counter on it. And that's like, you know, the one-two punch of Entomb uh, Reanimate from Legacy, but, you know, with some more stipulations. It can't be, leg- can't be a legendary creature, and you gotta pay four mana instead of uh, instead of two mana and no part of his instant speed. So it's slowed down quite a bit, but... I think that Unmarked Grave, we were actually talking about this uh, this afternoon before the podcast because you were showing me some of your reanimator lists. I think Unmarked Grave, I'm much more hopeful for than Persist because I think that time has shown over the history of modern format that being able to entomb a card into your graveyard is very, very powerful. If this card isn't always just entomb a creature and is you're able to make it so sometimes it's you know, I'm going to use Unmarked Grave to go make sure that I have my Ray of Revelation or my Ancient Grudge. If I'm able to use it to find a Life from the Loam or a Dark Blast or some other graveyard effect, uh, this card, you know, it becomes a tutor that also fits a game plan bigger than itself. So it becomes a more flexible card than being as rigid as a Splinter Twin. Because that's kind of the problem with, there's multiple problems with Reanimator decks. Uh, when it comes to to modern, the first of which is that your deck is going to be kind of doing something I'm not certain is on the power level of the format, just putting a big creature ahead of rate into play by casting some spells uh, isn't always a winning strategy. It, it seems like it might be a little too weak to hold up to some of the more fair decks in the format, but the other thing is that you're going to have these draws where... You have these eight cards, four copies of Unmarked Grave, four copies of Persist, where other than casting them together, they don't do anything. So if if that's the case, which, you know, most often I feel like it will be unless you are able to build your deck another way, uh, it, it's significantly weaker than if you're able to, you know, if your Unmarked Graves are always a card that's enabling you to do something else while you set up to get to the point where you're persisting something, or if it's just you have like a couple copies of Persist and it's part of a game plan for you that you can actually just unmark Grave for the good card and persist it some amount of the time. But a lot of the other times you play your copy of Unmarked Grave and it goes and finds you some utility card. Um, like those packages are what I'm more hopeful for than any like reanimator strategy. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I will say this. I, I think reanimator is very close to good. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ways we can play this sort of package. And I am excited to see how it impacts modern. Because we have a lot of really good graveyard hate. But I think it's very yeah. close. Can we, uh, can we touch on like some of the stuff going on in that deck? For, sure. Is that, is that confidential? Or are we good to talk about? I mean, we can talk about the, the idea I had. It's going to be on Card Kingdom this Thursday. Okay, yeah. So um, 
it was a blue-black reanimator control deck. I'm not going to talk too much about the details um, because you can go read about it on Card Kingdom. Uh, but it was like, you know, four persist, four unmarked grave, and its reanimation targets were one of the new Archon. It's that's the, Ar- like, the Archon of Cruelty, which ETBs is, your opponent's sacks a creature, lose three life, discard a card, you gain three life, draw a card. I'm not going to lie, it's like, I just think of it as Croxa and Uro stapled together. Yeah, they did the fusion dance in Dragon Ball. There yeah. Yep. And then there was a Grave Titan and a Worm Coil Engine. Yep. And then I had Snapcast MH that you technically could do, but it is kind of more cute than anything. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then, like, yeah, just some, some of the control elements. Like, how did you... How do you see that, like, fitting into the format as it is? So I my thought was is that I think the, like, stop what you're doing and, like break up your opponent's interaction and like their plan is pretty easy to do in modern especially with counterspell i think there's just enough blue interaction that it's very easy to break up what they're doing and what uro did was allow you to kind of do that while progressing your game plan then gave you a thing later come back and take over the game and i was like okay i would like to kind of do a similar game plan but have something that when i use it wins the game and i want to be able to do it while having mana up to interact still so my head i kind of thought that like my unmarked grave is like a turn four play and then i persist you know with like archmage's charm up basically it's like the worst case scenario for me uh and then you know i bring back i go and get the threat that is like the best for the situation and i actually read this in my article but i i picked uh three cards that are kind of strong like nebulously and aren't silver bullet strong because it's unclear what modern's going to look like but worm coil engine and grave titan are both good against attrition decks where worm coil has the added benefit of being good against ones that pressure your life total a bit more and grave titan's better against ones that kind of try to assemble a lot of card advantage but you know they need to answer this grave time where it's going to take over the game and the archon i think is such a powerful catch-all card that it's kind of just the one you can go for for everything else and will kind of slam the door on your opponent and I wanted to be able to do that. And I also wanted my control deck to have a chance to beat other unfair decks. Because the problem I've had in the past with control decks a lot is that you can't beat unfair decks. So I wanted to be able to, like, turn two grave, turn three persist, put the Archon in play, and just start ripping your hand apart as I, like, you know, bash you. Or maybe you put Grave Titan if they're, like, a graveyard-based deck. But you get the idea. I wanted to be able to, like, quickly get a threat down and then start protecting it with counter spells. And, you know, have some kill spells like Fatal Push, get some discard like Thoughtseize, and kind of fit all of that into a deck. Okay, so so it's really interesting because to me, what I kind of like thought of immediately after looking at that deck list was like, well, if these are some of the best things we could be reanimating without getting like two into a, uh, two into like a silver bullety shell, like maybe the way to go is to build like a value reanimator deck where I'm like, Getting back Thrag Tusks and stuff. Yeah, maybe. I could see that. Because that also would play into maybe... I, I know that adding green expands a lot of your ability to get graveyard synergy cards. Oh, I, I'm with sorry. With graves and stuff. Yeah, that, that's true. I also... The reason... The, the final reason for Worm Coil and Grave Titan was that you can actually cast those. Is that I found when playing those games, you very typically get to that amount of mana. And I wanted to be able to play that, you know, instead of like a Force Negation or something to back me up. So... I think you could actually cast two of your three reanimator targets pretty easily in the deck. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Uh, so Thrag Tusk fits. Yeah, no, no, I just, I'm just, I think that, you know, since, since I'm touching on Unmarked Grave, there are very real ways to use the card, and I think, like, two-card reanimating. I personally think I lean towards, especially early on, 
trying to push it as far as it can go. Like, I would have been reanimating Terastodon, or, like, I, you I, know, I, playing, like, some Liliana the Veil, and, like, really, like, getting aggressive with my use, because I'm going to have all these extra, like, dead copies of these cards, um, you know, really, like, pushing pushing that as my as my line, but that I do think the control reanimator angle is one that, like, you know, isn't bad. It's just something that usually comes about once you know how good it is to be doing the thing in the format. Yeah, I think a lot of the cards, I've seen people talk about Tidespout Tyrant and Terrasson a lot, and maybe this is me being a little bit of a magic millennial or whatever, but, like, those cards kind of suck, and I don't think they're very good in modern, and I don't think it's going to be easy to build a deck that enables them. And so, I, I just don't believe in those cards. <laughs> I'm kinda... just saying, I think I think you win more games than against the unfair decks if you go turn two, uh, unmarked grave, my Terracidon, turn three, persist my Terracidon, blow up my land and two of yours. Yeah, I mean, that will definitely happen, but I can always just sideboard Terracidon, baby. <laughs> Ooh, now we're talking. Okay, you know what? I'm back in on blue-black grave titan. Dude, I, all I'm saying is that I mentioned having thought seized. I can turn one thought seize myself on the Archon. Turn two persist, baby. Ooh. Boom. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Get him. That, that game's over. That game's over. I mean, maybe they have a pass, yeah, that's, but it's that's over. <laughs> no, they never have it. Never have it. Uh, let's get to our hits. These are the cards that are going to almost assuredly make a big impact on the format um, in some way or another. My first hit is Yavamayo's Cradle of Growth, which I think is a controversial hit, but I'm a firm believer in this one. Uh, Yavamayo's Cradle of Growth is a legendary land that turns all of your lands uh, into forest as well. So it is like Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth, but for forest. Uh, and I think this card not only is so powerful in the Amulet Titan type shell, where we actually have a lot of lands that we want to play or do play, that are not green producing, which is a sometimes a problem in our deck, and this fixes that. But it also just lets us not have to worry about that sort of thing. But then there are other places where the fact that it like makes all of your lands green or forest is just such a huge benefit. The first one that jumped out to my mind was Nykthos. And like those modern green devotion decks, you want to have a bunch of green, green, green cards, right? And things like that, so you can produce a lot of mana, but your Nykthos, which you want to use alongside that doesn't work very well with those sort of things. So having this with Nykthos, I think it's really strong. And then it opens up Arbor Elves to start untapping all these lands. So I think there's also a lot of area to explore. Of like, what can we do with Arbor Elf that we couldn't before because the land wasn't a forest? And I, I think this card's actually just incredibly strong going to make a big impact on Modern, even if it doesn't seem like it would in the same way like Hogak would. So Yeah, there's there's a lot there with Yavamaya. You can... Uh, like, I... At the very base, like being a mana fixer in the same way that Urborg is for decks like uh like the Ogmoth deck that have like Shrekrugeist in them and a bunch of like mana dorks and then also have uh Geralt's Messenger. Geralt's Messenger to cast. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like uh having a lot of forest is good. You can also worth mentioning, time stamp some blood moons. That's true. Get your green mana back. Who's laughing now? I love this uh, yeah. I hadn't thought about the Arbor Elf stuff at all. That's really, really actually very interesting. I think especially um, with the, like, Nykthos Green Devotion deck. I hadn't thought about the deck in forever. But that is, you know, definitely a uh, definitely a very real avenue for making pushing that deck up a level is finding 
you know, maybe not playing four copies of this card and four Nykthos, you know, with all, like they don't have too many legendary lands in general. Um, but when you find those things together, your deck is probably looking a lot better than it ever has uh, in the entirety of the format, even when there's like once upon a time and stuff. So, yeah, I, I am. I am so in on this card. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to share my secret. The thing I've been trying to work on and just wanted to see if it was good before I share. I just want to tell about it. Like the bounce lands with Arbor Elf and the Yavamaya thing. I think it's just so good. And like the green white Titan decks were already sort of a thing before. And they played some out of bounce lands just because you wanted to have multiple triggers off for your Dryad. But being able to get to our Titans more consistently quickly, I think is so strong. And we don't have Field of the Dead to pay off like before, but man, th this sort of combination of cards seems so powerful. And, and if you want to look at it in one way, Arbor Elf becomes your amulet of vigor, right? But more consistent at giving you extra mana. And if you think about it that way, I think it really kind of changes the way we can build decks. So I, I think this card is going to make a huge impact on modern. It's it's so so powerful. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's hard to say that it wouldn't. Yep. Uh, Grief is my other pick. And uh, Abe, I don't know your pit list. Do you have any of the other cycle of the evoke creatures? Because I'd like to talk about I do. It. I have one okay. on, uh, on mine. Well, I'll, I'll do it right after this one. Sure, so. sounds good. So Grief is two black black uh, for a... 3-2 with Menace that has, when Grief enters the battlefield, target opponent reveals their hand. You may choose a non-land card from it. That player discards the card. And you can evoke it, which means casting it uh, with an alternate casting cost. This one is exile a black card from your hand. So you actually play this card on turn one with no lands in play by exiling a black card. Um, and I think Grief is one of the stronger cards in the set. When I first saw Grief, I was a little low because I didn't know what the whole power level of the set was going to be. And I thought, this, uh, this might just be when the normal powerful do you want to say something Abe? yeah i do think it's important to clarify if you cast something for its evoke cost it you sacrifice oh. it immediately when it comes into play yes so yeah, it comes so. into play you stack a trigger that says you sacrifice this thing uh and then you stack it under the battlefield trigger or some of them have leave the battlefield triggers uh but yeah, yeah. Like you, you don't just get to you don't just get to turn one a three two menace for four just yeah. because you exiled the thoughts from your hand. Yeah, you have to have a fim rate in your hand to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but th this sort of thing is really strong, and the free spells in Modern have not been very good recently where they've been banned from us. Uh, and so Grief is a way to interact in the early game and kind of take over games. It has some kind of combo wombo potential with a fim rate from Modern Horizon 1, which is an instant that flickers the creature out and has rebound. And so the kind of crazy draw that people have been freaking out about, and I'm sure if you listen to other content you've heard, is you go turn one some white source, you exile your black spell, you grief, you look at their hand. After you look at their hand, assuming your grief won't get exiled or killed in response, you ephemerate before the evoke trigger happens. You get to grief them again. Then, in theory, because you've griefed them twice, they can't kill this. You untap, rebound, grief them again, and now they've lost three cards in their hand. I'm unsure if this strategy is actually going to be good enough. But I think that Grief and its whole cycle are good enough to see play over the course of Modern. And whether Ephemerate and it are actually broken and need a ban or whatever, only time will tell. But I watched Corey Bamash do on versus live against Ross. And Ross was playing the Yawgmoth deck, which admittedly does require a fair amount of pieces. But he just turned one Corey, uh, sorry, Ross Mulligan. And Corey just went, turned one Grief Ephemerate it. And, you know, Ross had no resources left to play. And I, I think the Grief of Emirate package is fairly strong because it works so well with a bunch of other cards in that same category. You know, Tide Hollow Scholar works so well with Grief and so well with Emirate. 
and things of that nature that I think we're just going to actually see this sort of thing happen. And a 4-mana 3-2 that ETB takes a card in their hand is, you know, close enough and the menace part's nice. So, yeah, it's very strong and will... Actually, another point that's probably worth mentioning is, you know, a lot of times you discard your opponent's hand. It's like, cool, we're both out of resources. We've both spent a lot of cards. I still have the 3-2 in this situation. And so I get to start beating down, which I think is uh, super powerful. Um, I'd like to talk about all of the, the cycle apes. Do you want to talk about yours real quick before we kind of have a conversation about these? Yeah, so the one that I picked is the white one, which is Solitude. That's three white, white for a flash lifelink creature. That's a 3-2. And when it enters the battlefield, exile up to one other target creature. That creature's controller gains life equal to its power. And it has folk exile white card from your hand. So it's... Uh, you can pitch a white card to effectively cast a swords to plowshares uh, on on the creature, and uh, it, I picked it because I think that it just changes the rules of the format by so much. Like I don't know that I could ever see myself playing. I don't know a deck like Hammer Time or Infect again if people are able to register this card because it's just. The shields are never down. Like, if I'm able to... One of the things that makes the blue decks in Legacy so powerful, especially the blue control decks, is that they were manufacturing so many positions where the shields were never down. Either it was with Counterbalance Sensei's Divining Top, where they could, you know, make a window to resolve their Jace and have, like, their Force of Wills for things that really get through the cracks, or use their uh, their top and their Counterbalance to, like, lock out, um, you know, the interaction they would expect. Um, in a similar way, like, if I cast a Jace now and you have... You know, you don't have any creatures, but you have a treetop village. I can two-for-one myself to, to set it up, or if I play my Jace, I don't have to worry about you firing something back at me because I can force negation it. It's it's just such a, like, dynamic warping card to exist in the format where I can just... It's like Slaughter Pack without a drawback. It's like... I guess the drawback is you have to have, to have it in hand and a white card, but, uh, you know, it's just so powerful. Yeah, and if we ever another thing to mention is if we ever cast these, which will come up, right? Like you're talking about the situation where you have to evoke it, right? But what about the next turn where they couldn't kill the Jace and you untap and you brainstorm and then you pass the five lands, right? Like they play like two haze creatures to, like a burn deck, they try to attack the Jace or something. You're like, all right, block it, exile the other one. So powerful. I I, I think these creatures, these things being actual creatures some percent of the time, actually helps their playability a lot. And if you could. They were like zero zeros, for example, where they always killed themselves, right? Uh, and maybe you got some extra power. We would still consider playing these cards. But uh, they're so strong. I, I think Subtlety is the other one I want to talk about really quick before we kind of talk about all of them. Um, and Subtlety is the blue one. And it has Flash, Flying, 3-3, three, three, Evoke for a blue card. And it puts a creature or Planeswalker uh, on top or bottom of the controller's library of their choice so it's aether gust for any creature or planeswalker well it has to be a creature spell or a planeswalker spell so, so you do so, have to hit the card on the stack sorry yes yeah that's i guess it's a bad example aether gust can hit things on the board but uh yeah so this lets you do it works so well just everything you said about the uh, white one basically exactly the same here um and backbreaking too especially if they feel like they have to put it on top these cards like ape said fundamentally change the game and they're the only cards I'm not super happy about. There are people like Ari Lax who have been really big uh, haters of these and has been bashing Watsi and play design for them the whole time. I like the idea of these sort of things. 
I just think they're too strong and they're too warping. Uh, the, the green one at, puts target player's graveyard on the bottom of their library. I think that's a great hate spell. Uh, and I think it's actually one of the, the crazier ones that doesn't see talked about as much talk about because green is so good at tutoring creatures. You know, you can now Eladomri's call for your green hate spell in modern. So like all of my Titan decks are going to play at least one of this because I can go and pack for the, you know, I believe it's Endurance is the name. Uh, and yeah. then you go and get it and, you know, put their graveyard on the bottom. And even the red one, which some people are calling the weakest, is ETB deal four damage divided as you choose and it's a creature with double strike. That one, you know, I think very strong with a fem rate, maybe more so, only, or maybe only grief is stronger than it, that with it. And that's a really powerful thing to have uh, access to in a red deck, you know, that's able to completely swing the dynamic. And Yeah, I mean, Pyrokinesis so for a long time was a staple card that you'd see in sideboards of, you know, decks that played a bunch of red cards in Legacy. The ability to pitch two cards and divide up four damage is absolutely backbreaking in some matchups. Like, I know, I know I played a lot of Goblins in Another Life, uh, a lot of Legacy Goblins. And you'd play against Death and Taxes, or Affinity was a deck back then, or, you know, Elves, and, you know, you have some removal, you have some ways to interact with the board, but you aren't a deck that's full of those, and if you're a red creature deck that needs to have ways to interact with large densities of creatures, you know, being able to pitch two cards to kill two or three very important creatures on the other side of the table at instant speed uh, is so, so good. I I'm surprised to see people actually, like you know, have forgot about Dre in, in the sense of pyrokinesis, but... Yeah, it's it's crazy. I don't know. These are so powerful, the game warping in decks that generate extra advantage. These particularly are so good at stopping stuff that the decks that are like Jace to Fairy decks, for example, are going to really like them. And like the Taxes deck that kind of rip people apart, they're really going to like Grief and... Um, I forget what the white one's called, but you know... Solitude. Solitude. Yeah, Grief and Solitude, they're just going to see a lot of play. And... I don't think they should be banned without having played with them. I know some people are like, man, they break the rules or whatever, but it, it is going to change what is playable in modern, I think. I uh, think there's a bit of overreaction to grief because of the whole ephemerate thing, but realistically, uh, grief is doing something that is kind of like actively discouraged and has been kind of weakened uh, in you know, the last year or so of modern, which is, like, if you look at the card Unmask, which is almost identical, it's uh, it's three and a black for a sorcery that does the same effect, and you can also exile a black card to cast it without paying its mana cost. So the only difference is you can't, uh, you can't cast a 3-2. Like, it doesn't have the body and stuff, and you can't ephemerate it, but that card only sees play in decks that are the most, doing the most unfair things possible, right? It sees play in Dredge as a way to protect itself. It sees a play in Black-Red Reanimator as a way to protect itself uh, from, you know, the other free spells going on. And so if you feel like there's a need for proactive hand disruption because of the fact there's going to be a bunch of, like, free reactive things, then there's a, there's a good argument for that existing and for that being necessary. Um... Grief also works but, for World Persist, by the way, the reanimate spell. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, but yeah, it's it's like I, I think there's a bit of a bit of the sky is falling in there, but they are incredibly powerful. I do I do think that um honestly, I think that Solitude is the most offensive. maybe I shouldn't say it's the most offensive to me, because I do think that Fury is is of a similar 
caliber of effect. But like red decks do that less often already have so many good ways of interacting for cheap. And white really only has Path to Exile and is already a little bit weaker. So I, I maybe think the blue is the most offensive because it go. stops the other bit of the cycle. Like the rest of the cycle loses to the blue cycle. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> if if it beca- if the format does become really about that, subtlety does do that. But you know, you're still you're still down cards. You're still course. trading two for one. Yeah. There's the things, and this has always been the rule about like a force effect is that the reason forces are so good is because often the thing you're trading two cards for is worth so much more than two cards. So the thing that you have to be lining up to trade your two cards for has to be better than that. And so, you know, when decks are investing pump spells and they're Glistener Elf and you're able to exile two cards to deal with that, you're actually getting, you know, their whole turn of mana invested in trying to kill you, all the pump spells they cast and their creature. That's a, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's not always necessarily that way when... If the time is worth that much, if you're like, you play your Teferi and they're like, I'm going to play my Teferi. You're like, no, put that on top. Then they're like, oh... Yeah, this sucks. Like, you know, it does yeah. suck. Um, but not always is that going to be the case. And uh, I think like we saw with the forces, these will be very good. And some of them will, you know, possibly define the format in some ways. And that's just going to be the world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, that's that's how it is. Last thing I'll say, I cannot wait to see the M file for this set because I bet you these cards were made before they knew Imperial Recruiter was in the set, and I bet you they had less power and toughness before you could go tutor them with Imperial Recruiter. I, I think there's a reason they're all three-something. <laughs> I don't know. I think those are those are all decent stat lines for, for creatures. They're, sure. they're like, especially for creatures with big ETB effects. Yeah, what I'm saying is I bet they used to be weaker, but then you could tutor them. Oh, like I, I don't know. You, you, I, I, I would... I would be surprised if that was the case because I think that, uh, you know, like, is it really, is it really going to be mythic rare quality if it's, if it's just a two blue, blue, two, three flyer? Yes. I don't know, man. Yes. Yes, it is. It is mythic rare quality. With that ATB effect, I, I think. No, I'm going to Twitter. All right. What's your last card? I'm going to make this poll. My last card (laughs) is damn. I think that card's going to be a hit. Esper Control, already one of the better control decks in Modern right now. Well, you just tell people uh, what Dam does. Cause he, I, yeah. yeah. Hold on. I, I, Come I know on. You don't know? I know. You don't know? I just, let me set up why it's so good. It's black, black, destroy target creature, can't be regenerated, and it has overload for two white, white. So it is either your unconditional removal spell or your good old-fashioned Wrath of God. Everything you could want. Oh. It's already, you know... It's all there. It's everything you could need. You need to kill. It's a sorcery, so it's not. You know, you can't. Just, it doesn't come with the quick and attached. You can't just do whatever you want with it. But uh, you know, it's it's a versatile enough main deck card for a control deck that is black and white based, like Esper, um, to justify. They they often have trouble fitting in like one or two supreme verdict or damnation or wrath of God, whatever they choose based on their mana or what they need to answer. It can be kind of hard to, to fit in all the slots, but when you're able to say, okay, instead of playing one go for the throat or one uh, one of whatever my two-mana removal spell is, I can play this flexible removal spell that has a drawback in this place, but a huge upside in this corner case that isn't actually so corner and fits into my sideboard plans where I already have a wrath in 
or I can board in a wrath. It, it's just such a strong card that I think that it's something that will be a player in the format uh, almost immediately. It's it it just checks too many boxes to to start to condense the slots of the control decks down in the same way that Archmage's Charm has done so, and that uh, and that like you know Snapcaster Mage does. Yeah, yeah, I, I think Dam is quite good. Um, it's gonna see a lot of play. Funny, hits kind of always come down to these super efficient removal spells. The, you know, the first hit ever in the history of the Pick 2 set review, Abe, was Assassin's Trophy. <laughs> Damn, Daniel. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, before we kind of wrap up here, Abe, what are your last thoughts on Modern Horizons 2 without having played with it? Uh, without having played with it, I think it's a really awesome set in a lot of ways. There are some things that we've talked about off-podcast that I kind of didn't really like but i think you know not every set is perfect and i don't think a set that's perfect for me is uh, a good thing for magic really so um you know i'm very happy seeing a lot of cards that i remember playing with in you know in legacy tournaments or you know reading about or playing with just in general o- over the history of magic seeing those come in and having another excuse to play with them kind of like in a master set when those come out uh, but then getting to see them in the format playing out uh as well as seeing so many new awesome additions uh new takes on existing ideas that we wouldn't be able to see otherwise um as much as i do like to do like to gripe sometimes in your dms about some cards <laughs> that i see you get say uh, noble hierarch on there it's all right <laughs> i i do like uh i like this set a lot i've i when i started playing it was actually like on the tail end of Time Spiral Block. It was uh, like Future Sight was the most recent set to come out. Um, when I started like going to an LGS and like playing Magic every weekend with with people, and I there was something really magical about that. We're just seeing like so much of Magic's history laid out in one set for me as someone who's coming in was awesome, and it, it was probably a little overwhelming. I was playing some playing casual magic with people who had cards from the entire history of magic. I was taking in so much at once. It was amazing. Um, and I think that sets like this get to do that in a more scaled down version for things people expect and people, you know, want to see and, and just the hits and just the best stuff. And I, I really do like to partake in that and get to feel that. I like to see Patriarch's bidding come back, even if I think I'll never cast it. Cause I like the card Patriarch's bidding, you know? And, um, these sets always bring a smile on my face. I think they did a great job. A lot of great picks on the old cards. A lot of great designs on the new cards. Um, and, you know, really it just comes down to hopefully none of the old or new designs prove to be unhealthy for modern as we get to a point where it hopefully regains its spot as the most popular magic format behind Commander, right? And as far as competitive play goes, for sure, uh, modern was was the number one. Uh, outside of her, like outside of being played on arena, yeah, before the vid for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I like this set a lot. I think this one fits much more in line with what the goal of Modern Horizons one was. Uh, you know, a lot of the times people talk about the first stream from Modern Horizons, and they showed us two cards, and one was Sarah, the Planeswalker that makes angels, and they were like, this one, you know, we don't expect to see a lot of play, but look, we're gonna do cool stuff like this with this set. And I think they've done that across both sets. But the other card they showed us was Cabal Therapist, which was the creature Cabal Therapy, which I don't know if you've noticed, hasn't seen play. 
But they said, we think this is one of the stronger cards in the set. And I, I don't think they were lying to us. I think that was the goal, was to have cards like that. And I think we've home run that outside of the evoke creatures for this set. And I think we have so many more things like that that are evocative, cool designs, push you in cool directions, help enable certain type of strategies and open up new ways to play. And I think this set might be one of the better sets I've ever seen. Uh, and it's so exciting to play with, uh, even if it's not going to be nearly as busto as the last set. So I'm super excited. And it's got so many needed reprints, you know, like bringing fetch line prices down is super nice. So uh, I think I think this could end up being an all-time great set. So I'm excited. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Control Criticism. I know it was a long one, but hopefully you enjoyed the modern goodness that it was. Hopefully we'll be seeing you in the queues and hopefully here in a year or so in events playing with these modern cards. So if you want to follow me, you can go on to twitter.com and follow Mason E. Clark. You can also check me out each and every week on Card Kingdom. This Thursday, I have five new modern decks for you. So we talked about some of them here today, so it's pretty exciting. Uh, and if you want to follow Abe, you can go to Twitter at more no things. It's M-O-R-E-N-O and then things. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you all next week for another episode of Constructive Criticism.